0: Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring. You'll get insight into various cultures and countries around the world. They'll share fantastic stories of their journey and through mine and my guest experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear bikes and bike setups if you're new to bike touring and considering going on a tour i hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen if you're already a bike tour i hope my guest stories allow you to relive some of your own experiences and give you a good laugh or two along the way in the meantime enjoy the show Hey guys, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Before I get into this episode, I want to go through some housekeeping notes. And, uh, the first one is the Patreon draw coming up on January 1st. I've been really fortunate with, uh, one of those show sponsors, Outdoor Gear Canada. They have donated a Blackburn Outpost Elite frame bag as they are a distributor for, for that company. And I've decided to do this draw for show supporters as a thank you for the contributions that help keep this show going. It's not too late to get in. There's still four days. And the way it's working is this way. If you, for every dollar you've contributed throughout 2021, you'll get your name in once for the draw. For the months of October, November, and December, I've made it three ballots per dollar. So as, a, as an extra incentive for new people to sign up. And of course, that also goes for prior or previous supporters. Uh, we don't have that many supporters compared to some other podcasts out there, and it really does help. I mean, this year I'm looking at buying a little, I guess, I'm not sure it's called a digitizer, maybe. Um, anyways, it plugs into the laptop, so I don't have to use the handheld recorder, and I can have the audio going straight into the computer and continue to use programs there. It makes it a little easier, especially probably when it comes to to editing and stuff, and that's where I seem to spend a lot of time. You can also participate via PayPal, so by searching PayPal and Bike Tour Adventures, you'll you'll find us. On that note, I'd like to thank the show sponsors. Outdoor Gear Canada, as I mentioned before, has been amazing by giving me, you know, industry discounts uh, when I bought my gravel bike and some other gear. And they've also thrown a few little things my way to show their appreciation for, for I guess, contributions within the bike industry, which is really, really cool and really humbling. Yeah. When I first reached out to them, I had what felt like barely any downloads of the podcast. And, uh, and now it seems like it's so much further along. And, and it's, you know, companies like this and people like you guys that help the show survive that, that definitely keep it going. Um, next is Redshift, Redshift Sports. They make amazing bike components. I've talked about them a lot. I use their seat posts, stem, handlebars, arrow bars, a uh, few little accessories, just all around really, really great gear. And if you did miss any of their Black Friday sales, you can use the code BTA15 to get 15% off at checkout. So that's really, really cool. Seven Mesh Clothing, another company that has been really kind to help me out, is a clothing company out of Squamish, BC. And they make really, really Cool pieces of bike clothing and really good quality. And I've been using their cargo bib shorts for about a season and I can carry so much stuff in the pockets that I actually don't have to use a feed bag like 90% of the time, which is awesome. Just, you know, one less thing on the bike and I don't know, 1% less drag. I don't know. And finally, although they're not a sponsor of the bike tour adventures podcast yet, today's interview with John Hicken of Restrap. He was really kind to offer a promo code BTApod10, so B-T-A-P-O-D-10, to get 10% off at checkout, which is really, really cool. And they have some amazing bags. They just came out with a fork bag trying to, you know, address some of the needs of gravel bikers out there. And it's a 5-liter bag. It's reinforced in all the right places, so you're not wearing holes through it uh, and then having a leaky water, like non-water type bag. I'm looking forward to checking these out for sure because... I previously used a Sea to Summit dry bag strapped to a uh, Salsa Anything Cradle. And of course, just the bumps and the rubbing and stuff wore holes through the bag. And then it was far from waterproof. These look a little bit heavier duty and well-made. So check them out at uh, restrap.com. Next announcement. Really huge for me. Um, It's been a real passion project. Something I've been working on since like May. I started with the thoughts of it and by partway through the summer is really kind of rolling into it. And I've created a new website called bikepackadventures.ca or bikepackadventures.com. Pretty clever with the naming there, right guys? And this website is more of a community project to, to share roots throughout the region and further afield. So I know people all over the place around the world that are doing amazing adventures and With this, I'd like to start populating the map and, you know, sharing with our listeners and our friends and anybody else who's interested, a selection of routes around the world. So if you guys like that idea, go to bikepackadventures.ca, click the submit a route button and fill in all the stuff and I'll check it out and I'll get it uploaded. On top of that, I've created some loops of my own, some routes within the Quebec region here in the national capital area. And... These routes kind of take us through provincial and regional parks, nature reserves, ski resorts, uh, back gravel roads, rail trails, and the seriously never-ending cottage country that is this area. Really gives the riders lots of ways to to mix and match their routes and really provide you new challenges and things to see along the way. So for 2022, I've decided to have a grand depart. Really just so, so riders can share in the spirit of gravel biking and bikepacking and, and to give us a chance to, to ride with new people, make new friends and, you know, share the passion. So 2022's Grand Apart, which will occur on July 3rd. I've chose this date because the first is a holiday and it's Canada Day. And I figured people are celebrating with their families and stuff. And then they can travel on the second. Kicking off on the third makes sense. And uh, it's going to start in Chelsea, Quebec, which is a really picturesque little town on the edge of the Gatineau Park where I live. And, you know, you'll have three different distances to choose from uh, with varying degrees of difficulty associated. And these are going to be called the Canadian Shield 400, 1000 and 1300. Obviously, the distances are self-explanatory. And if you're interested in knowing more, go to bikepackadventures.ca. Check out The Grand Depart. And you can also find all the other routes I've been talking about or lots of routes. um, So you can kind of plan out your entire summer. I haven't made a sign up yet uh, on the website, but it will happen really soon. So, yeah. All right. That's it. On to the podcast. In this episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, I'm speaking with John Hicken, the marketing manager of Restrap. For the past while, I've been thinking it would be great to reach out to companies whose products I've used and found to be of exceptional quality and practicality and have them on the show. Through my communication with John, the marketing manager, I learned that he's quite a well-traveled bike tour and bikepacker. I'm pleased to have the opportunity to speak with John and learn more about the cycle luggage industry. John, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, it's supposed to be here. Thanks for having us on.
0: So, John, let's start uh, with a bit of your background. And why don't you tell me, you know, about yourself? So,
1: yeah, um, I started cycling probably about eight or nine years ago now. Um, I originally started just commuting to work by bike. And having always liked riding bikes a little bit, started kind of going out more and more, branching out further, buying better bikes, um, as that becomes a bit of an addiction, as I'm sure you know. Um, And then from there, um, I started hanging out with a group called Fixed Gear Leeds. So I started riding Fixed Gear in Leeds um, around 2015. And from there, I met a few people who started doing road rides as well. I started riding with a group called Fixed Gear Leeds, and through fixed gear leads, I met the founder of Restrap Nathan. So he'd been riding with fixed gear leads for a good while before I met him, but, um, he originally started the business by making pedal straps for fixed gear bikes. Ah, okay. And, and he sort of, he'd only just gotten into the bike packing side of the company, uh, at that point. So this was around, I think 2015. So the bike bags were fairly new at that point. And then he clued us into sort of bike packing and bike touring and that kind of thing. And, I gave it a go. My first tour was actually solo um, in the north of Scotland. So that involved a little bit of island hopping okay. went around to Mull. And um yeah, just got absolutely hooked from there. So first tour was solo. And then the second tour was, uh, was with those guys, actually. And then became good friends and eventually ended up working for Restrap. Just started off in the packing room and then moved into being a team leader in that role. And then from there... Moved kind of sideways into the marketing side of things, as I had a bit of a kind of media background when I did uni and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's been a pretty interesting journey. I've been with the business for about about three and a half years now, be four years next year. And oh, okay, yeah, it's just going from strength to strength. And
0: uh, what attracted you to travel by bike? I think it's just at this,
1: at the heart of it is probably just riding bikes. <laughs> I mean, the more that you can ride bikes, the better, right? You know, mm-hmm. if you can kind of incorporate that as part of your holiday where you're riding bikes every day, then great. And, you know, it's, it's kind of traveling, seeing new things. And it's such a sort of simple – it's just a simple way to spend time, a um, simple way to have, like, a holiday or vacation. And, yeah, I think at the, at the heart of it, it's as simple as that, really. Just I like riding bikes. And I think that's the heart of it with a lot of us that work here as well. And, you know, when you break it down, we just like riding bikes and having a great time with our mates.
0: What's the size now of the company? Like, how many people work for Restrap?
1: Oh, it's grown quite a lot in the past. Um, in the past eighteen months, uh, since COVID, actually, there's been a big bit of a bike boom, as I'm sure Huge a lot of boom. your listeners are probably aware. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, so around the time before COVID, we had twenty. I think it was twenty eight people. Oh, and, nice. Okay. And as of this week, we now have seventy three people.
0: Oh, fantastic! So let's talk about your first trip through Scotland. Whereabouts did you go in Scotland, and how long was it? So it wasn't that long actually, because I was sort of I was just
1: about getting into doing long distance rides. I'd done a couple of hundred milers, uh, but I knew that riding uh, with luggage was going to be a lot harder. Mm-hmm. So I planned, I planned about three hundred and fifty miles, I think it was. So that was. It started in Glasgow and then headed north past Loch Lomond. And then through the highlands over to Oban. Okay. And then the main, the main aim was to cycle around Mull, uh, because a friend of mine had like really recommended it and it's a stunning place.
0: I've heard good things about um, uh, Scotland.
1: Oh, oh, it's absolutely stunning. You, if you haven't been already, you've got to go if you get the chance. It's just, it's, it's quite, it's interesting because it's quite sort of, there's a good wilderness aspect to it, which is about as much wilderness as we get in the UK. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's, uh, over in Canada, there's, a, uh, there's a lot more wilderness to be had when it comes to. I go to like riding. five
0: minutes from my house. I lose cell phone co- coverage. <laughs> <laughs> <Or> maybe <laughs> oh, ten minutes. <laughs> so, like, how far
1: can you head from civilization where you are?
0: Um, you're never too too far. I mean, I've I've created a bike route that goes, um, that uses the Scattno Park as one of the parts of the route, and you go through it. But I mean, you definitely at some points you just have no phone data, like no no phone cell coverage at all. So you know, um, but you can go pretty damn far. Yeah, it's, it's pretty long.
1: Yeah, I think some of the places in Scotland you can probably go. I think the longest you could probably go without a food stop, if, if you did a gravel ride, it'd be a long way. Um, but if you're traveling on roads, you could probably go sort of 80 miles maybe without eight, a food 18, stop. 18,
0: like 1 8
1: or 80? Oh, no, eight, 80. 80, yeah, okay. eight zero. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I got to Mull, I was massively underprepared. Um, okay. Which is a. It was, it was a bit of a learning experience for me because I got off the ferry, and um, in my head, because in Yorkshire, if there's if there's a, somewhere with a place name, mm-hmm. it's got a pub in it. So okay. You're like, oh yeah, there's always there's always somewhere to stop for somewhere to eat or somewhere to drink that kind of thing. So i have gone in my head that on Mull, there are all these tiny little villages and they all had pubs in them. Ah, okay. No, yeah, it's not the case. So when you go on Mull, it, if the somewhere's got a place name, it's got a house with a phone box outside of it. <laughs> <laughs> So that was, uh, I think, 65 miles, um, having only eaten a Bakewell tart and uh, a cup of coffee. I was absolutely starving by the end of oh, it. No. it a, and, uh, oh no, Tour
0: packing. It you, was
1: pretty terrible preparation. And, and were yeah. you
0: using panniers or more of a bikepacking setup on that first tour? I've, I've never used panniers. Okay.
1: Um, so I, I used um, saddlebag, uh, bar bag, and frame bag, and that mm-hmm. was it. Um, that's all the Carry Everything range was at that point. Um, so I used the sort of original set of bags that, uh, the Strap made. There's some, there's some old photos somewhere. I'll have to send them over to you. Um, but yeah, I think I've still got those bags oh, nice. uh, under my bed at home. So yeah, they've, they've seen a fair bit of use since then. And are you
0: a clip-in or flat pedal type person?
1: Yeah, I've got the one-sided SPDs and they've got flat on the other side. Mm-hmm. I mainly use the flat for commuting to work and that kind of thing. But riding normally, it's, uh, yeah, it's always got to be clipped in.
0: Okay. It's interesting to hear because there's so many, like, I've been biking uh, since I was 12 or something. And, like, a lot of biking. And I've been using clip-ins for as long, maybe since 16, I had my first bike with clip-ins or something. Mm. And um, and I, I talked to a lot of bike tours who, who use flats because, you know, they didn't grow up as bike tours. The, the bike is more of a tool. To extend this way of travel, and um so they they just use flats because it's not something they're comfortable with. But like then that's like I find like the distinction between somebody who I'm, in my mind is like oh they're a cyclist or they're a tour It's like oh what kind of pedals do you use? <laughs> it's I not solely a the case, long but...
1: distance, I know exactly what you mean. A lot of long distance tourers do use flat pedals, mm-hmm. and I think what that boils down to is they just want to wear their normal shoes.
0: Yeah, they don't have to carry that many extras or like an extra pair of bike shoes
1: no exactly and I think you've got the option of um like pedal straps uh as well like when I ride uh, when I ride a fixed gear I use pedal straps oh yeah do you know I'm any companies that make good gear. pedal
0: straps or oh
1: I, I, I'm not too <laughs> sure man I ain't got a clue
0: <laughs> yeah and what kind of bike do you use by any chance or what did you start with and how has that changed yeah so I started
1: with um I've always ridden steel bikes I okay. did try a carbon road bike years ago and I kind of Sort of phased out of that side of cycling because at the time I had the carbon bike, I also had the steel bike, which I used for touring. Okay. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure you probably know yourself, once you make your bike really comfy for long distance, you can't, you can't go back to anything that's racing. Mm hmm. It's hard. So I, so I, yeah, exactly. So I, I used, um, I used, it's a frame made by a local company called Aurelia Cycles.
0: Okay. I've never heard of them.
1: they oh, you probably won't have. It's quite a small business that's, um, he was based in Leeds, and now he's based um, just on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales. So he doesn't make the bikes anymore. I've still got mine. And then from there, I bought a Brother Kepler, uh, Brother Cycles. And I sold that last year and upgraded to a Fairlight Seikan, uh, the, the one that they brought out last year. And it's, I've, I've dreamed about owning a Fairlight for years, and being able to finally get one was just an absolute dream come okay. true. And it's such a good bike, absolutely incredible.
0: It's always fun, like the, you know, especially when you're, when you're talking to somebody from, from another country where, mm. you, you know, they, there's a different market of, it's like micro brew beers, the bikes, you know, oh, there's a whole yeah. different market of what are the bikes that people know about, you know? And, and, uh, so when people from the UK, sometimes you guys talk about bikes that like from these smaller factories or smaller uh, companies. And I'm like, I've never heard of that bike, but it's not a big brand right so it's the same as like when i mentioned a bike earlier you're like well i wouldn't know that
1: <laughs> no i didn't even know of that brand at all um so i think fairlight are mainly based over in europe i'm not sure if they've broke into mm-hmm. the u.s yet
0: yeah i've never heard of them
1: before we went over to canyon james hayden used to ride them um oh, okay. back when he was uh riding transcontinental a good few years mm-hmm. ago i think we actually sponsored him back then as well and then he moved on from there but uh when he won his first Transcontinental, actually, we we we'd sponsored him as a bike brand. Um, so the he's, I think he's probably still got it somewhere—the full size frame bag that we made for him.
0: Ah, oh, nice! That's really cool.
1: But the the Fairlight bikes are just absolutely incredible. Um, they've got kind of a they do this weird thing with the sizing. They've got um, they've got tall and regular, um, and I've got long legs, so I've got the tall. They've just got like a longer head tube and a bit sort of slacker geometry. Sounds like but Starbucks.
0: Like- yeah it's
1: Tall, regular grande
0: (laughs) (laughs) and uh are your bikes drop bar bikes or flat bar
1: uh all of mine are drop bar bikes Uh, apart from one that i purchased last week uh i bought a mini velo have you heard of what they are yeah yeah yeah. oh no it's absolutely insane it's a wheelie machine as well yeah if you sit back in the saddle and just pedal it just wheelies Oh, (laughs) it's just absolutely ridiculous i'm still yet to put uh it's it's brakeless fixed at the moment I don't feel comfortable riding it brakeless fixed because uh, it's just going to topple over as soon as I try and stop on it. But yeah, yeah that's going to be. People keep telling me to, that I need to bike pack on it as well, and I think that would be neat. I mean,
0: for a little bit of a road road go.
1: Oh yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a challenge there. Well, we did um, we did a small uh, bike packing trip on Brompton bikes because we just released um, a bag that's specifically Yeah, I guess goes some on, cool bags, uh, Brompton bikes. Yeah, the the city stuff that we do. Um, so we did a trip out uh, over a weekend where we cycled Bromptons off-road, and I tell you what, like even on the mildest trail, if you ride it on a Brompton, like the tiny wheels, it's like full-on mountain biking. It's just crazy.
0: I have a uh, I have a Bike Friday, so that's a an American-made touring bike that's a folding bike. Um, doesn't go quite as compact as a Brompton, but it's made of steel. It's. Um And it's relatively, it's geared with, you know, 18 speeds, I think, or 21. No, I don't remember what's on it right now. It's a three by something. Three by, oh, I I just converted it three by 10. So it's, yeah, 30 speeds. Yeah, it's a really, really great touring machine. So, but yeah, I know what you mean. You go off on gravel roads. Holy crap.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the wheels on those are a bit bigger than Oh, They're 20 20 inches. Yeah. Yeah. So they're bigger for
0: sure. And my wife has a birdie, which is a German made by uh, our recent Mueller and it's uh, 18 inch wheels. So it's, but it's got a little bit of front and back suspension. So
1: that's pretty cool. Yeah. They're great fun, aren't they? Like at the end of the day, like they're just great fun and that's mm-hmm. all that matters.
0: So, okay, back to you, uh, back to you and your, your first couple tours. So you said the first tour you did was solo and then uh, what kind of things did you learn between that first and second tour when you went with your, your mates? Um, I'm, I'm assuming you learned a lot. Uh, the main thing was how to put up my tent because I didn't know that actually <laughs> actually
1: going into the um, actually going into the first tour. So learning how to uh, put up your tent when it's raining in Scotland is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having a handle on that, the tour that I did, the first tour that I did with my friends, um, so that'd be Nathan, Alex, who does the graphic design here, and a good friend of ours, Gideon, and his other half tour. Uh, we did in Scotland again, actually. It was quite similar to the route that I did the first time. Uh, With but a bit more pub stops? Hit, yeah, way more pub stops. Um, we discovered the wonders of Buckfast as well, uh, which is kind of... How do I describe it? It's made in the south of England, but for some reason they don't really sell it in England. They sell it mainly in Scotland. And it's like a tonic wine that's got loads of caffeine in it. Oh, wild. Okay. It's kind of like cough medicine. It's it's that kind, You know everyone's got that kind of drink that they've had a bad night on and mm-hmm. it's just they've got awful memory. Yeah, Buckfast is that drink for a lot of people. And how do you spell this? And is
0: it book, like B-O-O-K? Uh
1: it's B U C K and then F A S T and it's made in like a Buckets. it's made by monks in a, an abbey in the of south of England yeah. somewhere. It's it's weird stuff, man, but it's great. It's great for riding bikes.
0: Maybe it's a the, the English equivalent of like pastis in the south of France. Ooh, nobody nobody really loves to drink it. You just kind of do.
1: Yeah, or like amaretto, which is yeah. just like packed full of sugar yeah yeah it's that kind of it's in that it's in that wheelhouse you know okay
0: yeah Pasties taste like um like black licorice kind of
1: yeah no it sounds pretty terrible especially but if it sounds like it's a great night out All yeah
0: right. uh, <laughs> so how did uh how else did things change on your tour so um yeah like i said the main thing was learning how to put
1: up my tent um i think they the thing that i kind of learned to deal with the most between the two tours was having a kind of set system for how you pack. Ah, oh, okay. Because when you're first starting out, that's the first thing you kind of need to get a handle on is is where things go, um, how to be prepared for terrible weather, um, just that kind of thing, really. And a lot of it comes down to just knowing how to be efficient with how you pack as well. Because mm-hmm. I think the first mistake that people make when they first start out uh, that I've seen is that they take too much stuff. Absolutely. Like you can... You can travel for two weeks quite easily with you know one set of cycling kit and then one set of civilian kit. Uh, I call it civilian kit, you know. Yeah. In
0: um, Were you in the military by any chance?
1: No. Okay, it sounds like a very military. <laughs> oh, mate, time. If, it totally isn't. If counted. I was in, if I was in the military, I wouldn't have survived long. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think, uh, yeah, is is. The first time I went, I think I took, I think, three sets of bib shorts and, and like, two sets of, um like, normal clothing. Yep. It, was, it was just too much stuff and you don't, you find that you just don't wear it and it stays at the bottom of your bag or scrunched up. So, yeah, I think that, and you just kind of learn to be a bit grotty here and there and mm-hmm. you know, wash your kit wherever you can, whether it's in a river or, you know, while you're showering in a hotel, you know, you just do what you can, don't you, so and i think another thing that people forget as well is that you can buy things on the road you know you, you can buy a new t-shirt or or some you know you, you can buy those you know those civic clothes you do not have to mm-hmm. carry them with you you can buy them when you just get to your destination it just saves a lot of packing
0: space then that's a good point yeah and, and, uh, and- you know buy d- And depending on the country, sometimes like in Japan, you can buy T-shirts and underwear in the corner store. They're like packaged as like one day use ones. You just chuck them out.
1: out (laughs) Perfect. Oh, I didn't see those in Japan, actually. Um, Well, that that kind of brings us on to the tour that I did after Scotland, Mm -hmm. which was. um, So we did the second Scotland tour that I did. um, And then the year after uh, 2018, we did Japan. Oh, nice.
0: What part of Japan?
1: Japan. Uh, We cycled from Osaka to Tokyo. Oh,
0: cool. um, And that
1: was, yeah, that was over the Japanese Alps. So that kind of runs sort of straight through the spine of Japan, more or less. And we cycled up a road called um, uh, Norikora Pass. That's the one. Norikora Pass. And uh, it goes up the, I think it's the highest paved road in Japan. And it is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. So we kind of headed north from Osaka through Kyoto, uh, past Lake Biwa. Yep. And then kind of headed east and then south.
0: So, you didn't circumnavigate um, Lake Biwa? We didn't go all
1: the way around it, no, no okay. but we sort of cycled a little bit along of it on co- the east yeah, to turn in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, along, yeah, and then sort of out the east side of it. I can't remember whereabouts, but uh, yep. a- absolutely incredible place to ride. Because have you have you been to Japan yourself? I've, been, so, uh, I've been many,
0: many times, yeah. So, I lived in Asia for a while and, um, I have a uh, a son in Osaka, so I, I was going a lot until COVID. But then uh, that's kind of stopped things, made it impossible.
1: That's oh, that's a, that's a shame. It's, Japan it's is su- it's such a cool place, though, isn't amazing. it? Amazing, yeah. Like everything is different. I think that's the the one thing that kind of sticks in my mind is like when you use the phrase culture shock, it doesn't even come close to what it's like to be in Japan for two weeks, especially like cycling through the. Um, through the countryside as well, because a lot of people will travel to Japan and they'll stay in the cities. Sure thing, yep. But staying in the cities, it doesn't give you the kind of real picture of Japan, which is, you know, they a lot of them have never seen a Western person mm-hmm. in their town, only on TV or whatever. And nobody speaks English. I think it's, what is it, 1% of the population speak English over there?
0: It's very low. Yeah.
1: It's very, very and, low. And those and people are in the lower. cities
0: for the most part.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. And I think... Osaka, we didn't encounter many people that spoke English, and Tokyo was probably the most. but everywhere else, nobody spoke English at all. But I think think that's great, because it immerses you in the culture a little Mm -hmm. bit, and you have to learn a bit of the language.
0: Uh, Did you guys do wild camping in Japan, or did you stay in hotels and stuff?
1: We certainly tried. Um, The first four days, we wild camped, yeah, so we f- we wild camped the first four days and then we kind of figured out pretty quick that uh why camping isn't really a thing over in Japan. Because no, there's nowhere to camp.
0: Just throw up your tent behind a convenience store on the side of the road or something like
1: <laughs> Yeah, we, we actually we did that. So the first night we couldn't find anywhere, so having been to Osaka, you probably know of the river that runs um between Osaka and Kyoto. You yep. know there's that park on the left hand side. Mm-hmm. So we'd cycled along that. But the park kind of runs the entire length of the river up until mm-hmm. kind of the outskirts of Kyoto, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a... But there's a cycle lane that runs through it with the worst sort of bike blocker speed bump mm-hmm. things in the world. But, um, you know, he, he you sort of learn to do a sort of cycle, cross hop over them. And then, yeah, we carried on in there and we found a motorway bridge and we figured that there wasn't really anywhere else to camp. So we just set up our tents under the motorway bridge. Yeah because um, the tents that we use, you don't have to peg them down. You can just mm-hmm. lie in them as they are. And then, yeah, I think the second day, where do we camp? We camped next to Lake Biwa again on, uh, on tarmac. And then the third day we tried to find a campsite and failed and then slept on this kind of wooden stage platform in this small abandoned town. And then I think after that we probably gave up because we, could, we couldn't really find anywhere to wild camp. The bugs over there are huge as well the further out that you get you get these wasps that are like the size of your thumb. Well, some of them are, some of them are that, really
0: really dangerous too, like the ones that are starting to invade into Canada and stuff, the
1: Oh, Asian, the hornets. The
0: Asian hornet are, I mean there's a couple of different ones that look similar and uh, but I mean even if you get stung by the non the non as deadly one it's going to hurt a lot.
1: Yeah, I got um I don't know what it was. I got stung by something. So we were going down this hill. It was near Mount Fuji actually towards the end. We were going down this hill at about 30 miles an hour. And um I felt something bounce off my arm. It was like I'd been shot by a BB Eagle and I was like, ah oh, Jesus crap, what was that? And then my jersey was kind of zipped down to below my chest. And then I felt something sting me like straight in the chest. And it was it was like being like it was like being pricked by a pin. It was really painful. Oh wow. And I was I was like, what is and I, because I was going downhill at thirty miles an hour, I was like, Oh, I, I don't even know what that is. So I kind of grabbed it and I didn't know what side of the jersey it was on, whether it was in the jersey or on yeah. the outside of the jersey but it took up my entire hand when I grabbed it and I kind of threw it to one side and uh, Alex was behind me he was like oh is that what that was I thought it was like a leaf or something that you just found in your jersey I was, no it was a it was like a huge but I didn't even see what it was it could have been anything that stung me but uh, I think for the rest of, like 10 miles I was like Am I going into anaphylactic shock? Is my mouth <laughs> swelling up? Is can I still move my tongue? I couldn't have even said, I, well, I wouldn't have even been able to ring emergency services because I probably wouldn't have spoken English. But yeah, probably it's, not. Uh, it's an interesting place once you get out into the countryside. But God almighty, it is just absolutely incredible. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. It's such a great place to ride a bike.
0: And you guys were there for two weeks. How does it compare to cycling in, in the UK?
1: Uh, the roads are smoother. Uh, that's <laughs> that's the main thing. Um, the see it's a lot um, it's a lot warmer. We went in September and it was unbelievably warm and humid. But when it rained, it was it was quite nice. It did rain actually quite a bit, but we didn't mind because it was so warm and it was so humid. You just, you just dry out straight away. Mm-hmm. The roads are really spectacular. So they kind of wind the way up mountains because we we don't have that many mountains in the UK. That's it's right, yeah. Just yeah, it's it's just big hills, really. So it was my first time actually riding up mountains, and, you know, you'd be up there for cycling up a mountain for, what, like three, three and a half hours, something like that, and then descending for an hour. And because you're out in the countryside, um, not many people in Japan seem to, you know, the population density is a lot lower, and if they don't need to drive on the road, then they won't. So the mountain roads that we took, there was nobody on them. We basically had the mountain to ourselves. Yeah. It was... Such a surreal experience, and descending Norikora—like if you were to find a descent in the Alps, that you would be descending for an hour and forty-five minutes. There's absolutely no way you would not see a single car in it. Mm But this, no—I think one car on the way down, and it was a service car. Yeah, yeah, it's just unbelievable.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that Japan's population density is not so high, and I'm like, meanwhile in my mind, I'm like, I'm from Canada. Japan's population, <laughs> population density is like, wow, like so many people. Um, I mean, when you go in the cities, but yeah, the countryside can be a lot quieter because, I mean, the, their, their migration to cities is huge. Like, um, you know, the population of Tokyo is all of Canada, you know, like the greater oh, Tokyo a- area is like 35 million and we have 30 nine now i think in canada
1: that is absolutely crazy isn't it and um well we we traveled croatia this year and we had no idea that the population density there was so low um their population is six million people
0: yeah it's very small yeah
1: and and i thought it was a lot because it's quite a big country um and you know riding through there is absolutely incredible as well so from japan we then so i did the pan celtic race after japan
0: is that the, the one across
1: Ireland, or...? It was through Scotland, uh, across Ireland, and then across m- kind of the majority of Wales. Oh, okay. So in the UK, there's there's five Celtic nations. So there's Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Isle of Man, Cornwall, and there's Normandy as well, oh, okay. um, which is another Celtic nation. Yep. So they the pan-Celtic race is kind of organized around those areas. Oh, very cool. Um, and when I did it, it was the first one um, and that was when Restrap had agreed to sponsor the event. So the guys came up here to meet us and we went to the pub with them. So they'd cycled 160 miles to come and meet us first of all and they turned up at three o'clock in the afternoon and bear in mind this was in a January as well. It was, I think, minus five outside. Obviously, nothing compared to a Canadian winter but pretty cold. They came up from uh Dudno which is in wales it's a 160 mile ride over in the winter and they we went the pub afterwards so they'd arrived at three o'clock in the afternoon and then we had god almighty i think i had probably about 11 11 pints that night oh aha. absolutely oh i was absolutely smashed and while i was drunk uh i agreed to do the race and i didn't remember the next morning when we met up again i went for a ride so so uh matt who organized the race like Oh, do you remember what you agreed to last night? I was like, "No, I ain't got a clue, man." What was it? He's like, "Ah, oh, this John mate, he's, he's having us on here." What's what's it? I was like, "No, I don't remember at all." It turned out I'd signed up to do the race.
0: I was so, like, actually registered.
1: Know, <laughs> oh yeah, like yeah. fully, fully agreed to do it. So, um, you know, drunk man's word. So I had to stick with it, and actually really enjoyed it because I've been doing a lot more kind of long distance riding. Mm-hmm. So, um just after. The second Scotland trip, I'd cycled down to meet a friend in Swansea, which is about 200 miles away. Yeah,
0: in Wales, right?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. And he he said to me, he goes, oh, I'll buy you a beer if you can ride down from, from Leeds to Swansea. I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. So over two days, rode uh, to my parents' house and then rode 160 miles down there. So I'd started to get into like long-distance riding yeah, nice. at that point. So. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to give this pancake race a shot then. I'm going to stick by this. And what a phenomenal experience. Um, I mean, you've done a few ultra races yourself, haven't you?
0: I've done, I've done a few like bikepacking routes, like aiming for fastest known times. So, you know, but I mean, essentially it's an ultra race when you're racing yourself and no one. <laughs> um, I've done lots of road bike riding and racing and stuff in Malaysia. And, and then, um, but yeah, not too many actual races, but yeah, carry on.
1: Is that something that you'll be looking at getting into then? Because I mean, you know, racing the clock is, you know, they call it the race of truth. But I think there's something about being hunted down by another racer that's, uh, that is, it, it's an amazing thing to yeah, keep going. Yeah, I, I would, that?
0: Um, I'd, I'd like to do, I mean, it's not much different. Like when you look at, in my mind, when you look at something like the Great Divide mountain bike race or like um, the Great Divide, and like the route, riding the route and racing is not so different because you're racing your own clock. But like when you have the competitors there with you, it makes a big difference. So like just to do, to be part of the grand depart, I think is, is a nice thing. Cause you know that you're all leaving at the same time. And if you see that person pass you, that means they're ahead of you. It's not like you're looking at your GPS and going, okay, I have to beat 65 hours or whatever. So yeah, I feel like maybe I'd like to do some of these grand depart events.
1: Yeah. Would do you ever give, um, is it the great divide that, um, kind of goes from,
0: uh, uh, Jasper to, to Mexico, kind of thing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Would you ever do something like that?
0: I'd like to. So yeah, with the new bike I'm going to build, that is the, the hopeful plan, but maybe, oh, I'll be like 44, 45 by then because, uh, you know, we're about to have a baby. So I'm definitely not going to do that in the next year or two. But for example, even next year, I have events planned. So I've got three to four events on my radar. Even with the new baby, we're going to travel across country and, once I set my wife up in the camper or something, um, or with some friends somewhere, she can have the baby and the dog and I might go for like two, three days, you know, and just crash out a race and, uh, which is a bike packing route as well. Um, so that's the hope. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, why don't you drive uh, really far away and then race them home while they drive in the van? You can uh, race them on your bike. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> Canada's really big. <laughs> <laughs> I, dro- I rode most of the way across Canada two years ago and um, I did 5,500 kilometers in just over a month, uh, just over a month, including rest days. And I only covered like half of Canada. That's crazy. Well, I, dr- I rode north first. So, I mean, I rode north and then I rode east. Um, so, I, yeah, I had quite a ways to go to get home still. <laughs> no,
1: fair play, fair play. So, how
0: did you do in this, uh, this Celtic, pan-Celtic race? I didn't do too bad,
1: actually, because I went into it with... Um a pretty poor level of preparation, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. Because <laughs> um, as soon as, as soon as I start riding a bike as part of training, I sort of stop enjoying it really. Because you, the the purpose changes. I I like to ride bikes for fun. Um, yeah. So as soon as, as soon as it becomes not fun, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. So so I kind of did a few long rides beforehand and tried to do the rides that i would normally do but then sort of eat less and faff less so i would kind of be like oh i can do a 70 mile but can i do a 70 mile without stopping you know right you know it's it's hard not to stop at a pub you know when it's ingrained in every fiber of your being but uh yeah in the actual race um just the kind of impetus of being in the race is is kind of it's such a good motivator for keeping you going because mm-hmm. I, I was like yeah i'm gonna smash this i really want to do well um so I kinda of set out to do something that I knew I was capable of doing. So probably about if I could have managed over two hundred K a day, which is what, 100 and, 120 miles a day, something if I could car. if I could average that, yeah, then then I'm pretty happy with that. And, you know, I'm I'm still gonna be getting the sleep that I need, there's still enough time to get the food that mm-hmm. I need and I'm not absolutely smashing myself to bits. Which I still ended up doing to be fair. Yeah. Um the first day I did 140 miles. The second day through South Scotland, I did 160 miles. Oh,
0: nice! Wow, that's long.
1: It's a it's, that wasn't too bad actually. It was the weather and the road surface which was terrible because okay. in South Scotland, um, there's a one of the counties there, Ayrshire. They don't seem to know how to surface roads. I don't know what it is. They just fill potholes in and then just don't flatten it out. Mm-hmm. So you've got potholes and then reverse potholes and about 120 miles of it, kind of it grates on you a little bit. And then Ireland I did in two days-ish. And then I completely messed up my sleep and then totally crashed at the side of a church. And then from Wales, I then crashed again and kind of caught up on my sleep from there and then sort of smashed the last half of it, really. So it was... It was a real roller coaster of a race, but it was great fun. Absolutely loved it. Apart from the bits where I didn't get enough sleep and um, absolutely murdered myself.
0: It's kind of like when you started bikepacking, like all these little mistakes that you don't realize you're doing and that you learn as you go to your next event. Well, like doing a, a bike race like the Pan-Celtic teaches you so much about, you know, the importance of sleep and managing that especially. But then as well, like how long you stop for, at places and how many kilometers you can ride in a day. And, um, until you do one, like you've done now, you don't really know. So, you know, failure, well, it's not real failure. It's, it's I mean, cause it's growth, right? So,
1: yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, yeah, it's, it's a good way to look at it. Cause you know, at the end of the day, like I've been saying, you know, probably about 15 times already that, you know, the, the long and short of it is you just want to have fun when you're going out there. For sure. Um, but if you've, got, if you've got a different set of goals and objectives, if, you, if you're going out there to win, like, I was never going to win. Some of these guys that mm-hmm. do the ultra races are just sure. absolute machines, aren't they? Um, but I wanted to do as best as possible. And, and you're kind of learning where things can fall by the wayside. So like you say, with your sleep or how much time you waste really is, is, is a big one when racing. Because you can all of a sudden stop for five minutes here, five minutes there, and all of a sudden you've wasted two hours. And it's it's just, amazing. It's crazy how much that time adds up, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I did, uh, I did two FKTs last summer. One was beaten about two days after by about two hours. And, you know, right away you're like, ah, oh, I knew I wasted too much time, you know, like, because that was my first event, which I, I mean, I, I did really well. So I'm happy that I, like I said, an FKT even for just a short while, uh, which is fastest known time. And if anybody's not sure what that means. And, um, so I did that nearly eight hundred kilometers in fifty six hours start to finish. That's impressive, yeah, somebody beat me by exactly two hours, and I was like, "Ah, oh. and he was just on the podcast recently, Theo Kelsey, and um <laughs> you know, kicking myself because I'm like, I know I could do two hours better, like just just managing little things, you know, like standing in line at Tim Horton's to get a food, you know, instead just go to the convenience store, grab something really quick, and keep going that, but it's so hard, like it's such a learning curve. And then uh, the other FKT I set, somebody beat it towards the end of the summer, um, late summer, early fall maybe, and they beat it by about four hours. And I'm same thing again. I'm like, oh, I know I could do better. I can beat that. Like, so it's it's funny how your mind works. But at the same time, there's so many other rides I'd like to do that. You know, it's life. I I, I know I did well, and I'm able to do well, and I just have to improve certain little tactics as well. It's like like you said, the rest stops. Man, they kill you because you can waste a yeah. lot of time. I
1: I bet you know exactly where those two hours. A where those two hours are in that ride oh, yeah. i bet i bet it's in, oh yeah yeah and yeah, that's the sure. most painful part is that you're like oh that was the one time that because like on the last day for me um on the pan celtic there was i had planned to get out of the hotel at five in the morning um so i'd spoken to the people um at the hotel i was like oh i want to leave at this time um and they're like, okay, cool. Here's here's the key. You can let yourself out. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, great, no problem. So I get up at five and I go down. And the key, it fits in the lock, and you can see it kind of starting to turn <laughs> the uh, the. Pin. It didn't open the door, and I'm just like, but the key fits. Like, what what is going? So the key didn't work. So I couldn't get out of the hotel. No one was awake. It was five in the morning. So I didn't even know where to ask. Yeah, so I was that's like nuts. Oh, Well, I might as yeah. I was like, well, I might as well just go upstairs and just get two hours sleep, and I'll come down at seven when someone will be about. Exactly. So, yeah, did exactly that. Two hours later, went upstairs, came down, still no one. So I just left out the fire escape. I don't know if I set off an alarm. You're lucky
0: you would have, like, already dropped your key into the box or something. That's a key drop or something. And you're like, I can't even go back to my room.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I went out the fire escape. I don't think I set off an alarm. I can't remember. Um, And then I got my bike, and then I cycled off. With the key in my pocket that I was supposed to give back to them. So then I had to turn around and go back. So that all uh, wasted about two and a half yeah, hours. Yeah, Which was the time difference between me and the guy in front of me in the race.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, it's it was, I got ninth. So I would oh, have been happy with an nice. eighth. But ninth, I was pretty fantastic. happy with ninth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for me, um, I mean, I, that was my first event. I had issues with my Dynamo. So I had to actually use a headlamp and I was holding that in my hand. On in some pretty rough single track sections at nighttime because that was the only way I could keep moving. So that died. I my since my dynamo wasn't working, I was running out of juice on my phone and battery. The the one spare battery I had brought was, it was just gone as well. Uh, I had to like manage to keep my Garmin going, and oh, it's just so many little things. And because of that, uh, I always had to make these stops and check. I had some problems with my Garmin because I made the map too big and too many points and. It would, ah, uh, it's just, yeah, nightmare. I, I wasted a lot of time. So I know I can beat him. Theo, I'm coming for you. <laughs> it can be,
1: it can be such tiny things though. Like even how you name the routes that you've split the ride up into. Exactly. So if you've got like a really long route name and then you've got part one at the end, if you're scrolling through, you have to figure out which one it is based yep. on, I don't know, the mileage, but because, because I use a Yahoo, it doesn't show the Either end of the file yep. name. Yeah. No, yeah. So you're like, oh, which one is it? I know it's pan-Celtic race. Duh, 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 duh. Is it part one? Oh, you can't tell. So you have to look at the mileage, match it up with your thing on your phone. And all of a sudden you've wasted like 10 minutes trying to load the day's route.
0: Yeah. So when I did my second route uh, event, I, I broke it up into 200 kilometer segments and it was so much more manageable. And I just, I gave the the name, well, it's a log driver's wall. So I just called LDW1, LDW2, 3 and 4. So short, I could easily see the names, Um, like lots of little things I I figured out as I went. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch Aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the Shockstop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used their race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTApod10 to save 10% at checkout lastly named after the animal that roams the tibetan plateau chiru endurance bikes was started by pierre arnaud lemanga in 2009 after noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market pierre used his expertise know-how and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer thanks and back to the podcast
1: yeah yeah have you got a um have you got a screen on your um, on your garmin that's uh Total ride time and moving time as well.
0: I've tried to program a uh, yeah I do. Um, there's a couple other things that like some some uh, ultra endurance racers I learned from was that they they you could program your own Garmin screens uh, with actual formulas and one person had developed formulas to to identify exactly when you stop, how long that stop is for, and also cumulative stop time. And just so you can kind of keep track and and a percentage as well showing a percentage total ride time. So you want to keep that as high as possible. Um, on a shorter race, you want to be like 90 or so. And if you're doing like an ultra long distance race, like somewhere between 75 to 85 is, you know, probably 80 to 85 would be your ideal because you're going to stop for more sleep and stuff. Yeah. So it's yeah, neat, it you stop I couldn't program. Stuff, I tried yeah. and it kept failing, and it didn't work. And I was like, finally, I gave up. Oh,
1: just just use moving time and then riding. Uh, so moving time and then total time, and then you get a pretty good idea from there. And I tell you what, it's it's uh it's pretty depressing looking at how much time you waste yeah. on the road yeah. sometimes. Yeah, especially when you're kind of pushing for the miles. That's true.
0: All right, let's uh let's move on. Let's talk about Restrap. Tell us about the company.
1: Yeah, so the business started back in 2010. Um, so it was started by Nathan, who's our founder. He started making pedal straps for the fixed gear market. So as I'm sure you can probably remember, the fixed gear scene was quite big back then. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of pedal strap companies on the market. and He kept finding that the ones he was using were snapping. So his solution was to use car seatbelt. So back then, it that had involved him going to scrapyards and Cutting seatbelt out of the cars in the scrapyards and climbing through, you know, smashed up car windows and grabbing it that way. And obviously, we don't do that anymore. We do, we do essentially reclaim the seatbelt. So it is effectively still recycled mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. It's a seatbelt that can't be used elsewhere. Okay. Um, but that's, that's where the company started is, uh, she started making those pedal straps. We've actually still got the first pair in the workshop. Uh, hung up on the wall is kind of a memento Nave's a bit of a hoarder so
0: yeah well it's neat um, though because so many was, people would have sold it and gone ah oh, i wish i would have kept that first pair
1: <laughs> no exactly so yeah it's uh it all started from there um and then with is that the, where the name comes from that, like
0: re-strap so like reusing a car strap or a seatbelt strap
1: it is yeah so it's like recycled strapping essentially is where the name comes from um and then from there he started making kind of Sort of accessories, um, some of which we still sell as well um, for fixed gear. So there's like a bottle holster that clips onto your belt. Oh, so you I saw can that, yeah. Carry a bottle on fixed gear, yeah. And um, uh, what else was the bottle holster? Uh, yeah, and a lock holster, which is essentially the same mm-hmm. sort of concept, really, but small accessories and then eventually luggage from there. And things have just grown and grown over the years.
0: Okay, so uh, what year? Uh, you said it was around 2015 or so that they they kind of established themselves as a cycle luggage company, or started to j- that, kind of delve into that market.
1: That's right. Yeah. So, um, from riding the fixed gears, I know that um, Nath cycled from London to Paris uh, with a few mates, and he was carrying like a backpack at the time, mm-hmm. and having making having to start to make to visit. Uh, Having made his own luggage at that point already, he decided to kind of set up the luggage on the bike, which is, you know, is the logical solution. So you're not carrying it on your back and it's uncomfortable and you have a sweaty back. That so kind he of made thing. his
0: own backpack for that ride?
1: Uh It was a loader bag, I think, which is kind of like a big messenger bag. Yep. Okay. Um, but but that was, it was him and a few mates and they were all carrying backpacks okay. and riding fixed gears uh, from Paris, uh, from London to Paris um, but from there, I think he got the bike packing bug and sort of having a holiday on the bike and, you know, traveling by bike and, you know, conquering that distance and conquering that challenge and obviously moved into, uh, the luggage side of things from there. And once the carry everything range came out, which was originally the, uh, frame bag, bar bag and saddle bag. Okay. Uh, things, things just took off from there and it was a case of kind of filling those holes in the range and, and by keeping everything in house as well, there's a lot of control over the production that we have. Um, we still do that today. So a lot of the sort of thought process that goes into our products is we'll go on a tour, we'll try it ourselves and we'll think, oh, you know, this this didn't quite work or, oh, I, I kind of wanted to carry that in that bag. What What could we do to make that bag work in that way? And because we do everything in house, we can test it, you know, in a day, for mm-hmm. example. So... A lot of our prototyping and testing at the moment is kind of problem solving, figuring things out and solutions. And there's lots of, I mean, I'm sat in the uh, the sample room at the moment speaking to you, but there's lots of samples here that have, you know, they're pretty crazy ideas. And some of them work, some of them don't, but because we're able to try them and test them ourselves, it's a really good way that we can kind of implement that design philosophy into our products as well.
0: Yeah, I guess that makes sense because uh, otherwise, you know, if you're outsourcing production and you had to send that out and get the one back and then try it out, like the, the timeline just becomes really, really long before anything ever gets done, right?
1: It does, yeah. So th- there's a few things that we have tried over the years, like um, making racks was one of them. It just, because of the way we operate and how we like to design our products, it's it's a difficult way for us to kind of work in some ways. So you know the normal thing would be you would send you would send a design off you would you would get a sample back and then you'd have to look at the sample and go okay this this works that doesn't work and and that kind of thing and getting to that end goal of an idea doesn't work can sometimes take 9 10 12 months um, but whereas we can do things ourselves we can do that in, in the case of a couple of days essentially yeah. because and that's what gives us the edge over our competitors because we can react quickly. Um, you know, we can, we can test things out that they might not try. You know, we've got a lot of tooling and technology that we use as well. Um, so there's, there's so many ways that we can kind of try new things out and see what works and what doesn't. Okay. And that's, that's what
0: it's, it's exciting for us. And what are some of the other things that make, you know, restrap stand out from the competition? Cause I, I, I mean, I do realize too, and p- probably in the last, two years as well. I think there's so many, so many luggage, uh, bike luggage companies that have established themselves from, you know, uh, basement, basement one-man operations and going up. There's been such a boom in cycling. And uh, how do you guys keep, you know, on the forefront of that?
1: Well, we like to try to portray to our customers that we're as genuine as, you know, as, as it gets, essentially. We design, build and ride everything ourselves. And by... Like I say, similar to earlier as well as talking about that those design changes and being able to react to things, we can do that with our customers as well. And we know that if our customers feedback something that doesn't work for them as a customer, we can change the design. Um, we have done on a few occasions the race saddle bag that we brought out. Oh, I love it. Um, the the well, you've used it, haven't you? So yeah. you know the foam pad that comes with it that goes against yes. your saddle rails. Yeah, yeah. It, it originally didn't have that, but a few a, a few things of feedback that we got with it was that the bag was rubbing on the saddle because it holds so securely. Yeah. It was almost to its detriment because it was kind of being abrasive against the, uh, the actual holster. Yeah. Which, because it's effectively made out of a mix of plastic and fabric, it's not that much of an issue, but like aesthetically, it gets a little bit scuffed. But that's why we added that foam pad. And the foam pad actually makes it sit slightly more secure because mm-hmm. over time it conforms to the shape of the saddle rails. So oh, good point. Yeah. by hearing the customer's feedback of that, and then going out and t- t- trying and testing that solution, you know, we've got to that point where, you know, the race saddlebag sits. Yes. I reckon is probably the most secure saddlebag on the market.
0: Since you, since you brought up that race saddlebag, I, I have to say like a buddy of mine uh, works in the bike industry and he has contacts, I think through your distributor here in Canada. And he got set of uh, the saddlebag and the, uh, the aero bar bags and i borrowed them uh for the log driver's waltz which i did um here in the ottawa region for that fkt and then after i used them to go to quebec city and back with a buddy of mine and we did that that's a thousand kilometers so i did it in about four days with one rest day in the middle and um yeah really good like they're just amazing so like just i'm blown away at how s- sturdy and secure they are i the think i learned about the the aero bar bag or is that I used it as a feed bag once and put all my food in there. And as it got empty, then it kind of started sloshing around a bit inside the harness. So that was just a learning thing on mine. And I would say, you know, like, well, use it to store light stuff and don't use it as solely for food. Cause when you run out of food, it just ends up to be like this empty bag on the front, which is not ideal.
1: Yeah. It's a tricky one. Cause, um, It's, it's a crazy, well, it's not crazy. It's, it's one of those things about bag design is that you can't have one bag that does everything. So, like the Aerobar bag, for example, it's a, it's for anyone who doesn't know who's listening, it's, it's a dry bag that goes in a holster. So, the dry bag, they're great for storing your clothes, baby bag, and all that kind of stuff that's kind of a set volume. But if you're storing food in there and it gradually, the bag itself gets less full and then becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, the holster's still the same size. Yeah. So, that bag's purpose is to effectively carry your clothes or your Sleep luggage, camping whatever, equipment. Yeah. 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 All that kind of jazz. So as a food bag, um, you'll find that the frame bag or the top cheap bag, you know, is, is going to be the better option. So they're the ones that you can reach out while you're on the road as well. Cause you know, the dry bag in a holster, you can't access yeah, that while you're yeah. riding. Yeah. So, I, I
0: was trying to carry food for, for a long haul and, um, to, to, yeah, it was just, it just didn't work in the end. So that was a, that was a huge, revelation and you know and at that point even though i was passing near my house at one point i'm like oh i can't switch it up because that would just be that would be against the the spirit of the the ride so i just suffered with that same you know setup wasn't able to really change it at that point until the next time i rode so just the way it is
1: but yeah well like you were saying earlier that's just one of those things that you chalk down to a you know a learning experience is you you don't pack that thing there anymore because yeah. it didn't work but then you pack it somewhere else and it does work so it's 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 those kind of learn experience that we that we try to kind of put across into our products that they're designed for you know, we try to design them for to sort of to carry everything, which is, you know, why the carry everything range is called carry everything. But there's not one bag that's going to do everything. For um, sure. And it's it's, you know, by being the people who that actually use our products, we like to think that we've got the best customer service out there as well because we can answer those questions in such a fine-tuned nitty-gritty you know we we can go down to the real details of oh yeah you can put that in the frame bag but i won't put that in there for this specific reason mm-hmm. or do you know what i mean it's yeah. um you know by having that experience is we're we're in the best place that we can to offer the best products and offer the best customer service as well
0: when did you guys create this race bag system it was almost off
1: the back of the pan celtic race so we'd been working on a set of sort of race related products before then we, we knew we wanted to make kind of lightweight bike packing bags and with myself having done the pan celtic race and speaking with the races before and after the event one thing that we heard time and again was the amount of riders that wanted a bag that goes under the tt bars for example because mm-hmm. no one no one makes them yeah. And I think people still don't make them. I think There's one Apidura, other company,
0: Apadera is the only other yeah. one I've seen. Yeah.
1: They made one um beforehand that wasn't really the same shape as the Aero bars. Um so it was it was kind of a more sort of flat shape, but it still fit onto the TT bars. Yeah, I think the first but, one they
0: made was for for going in the, the carry-all, like, water bottle holder type things on your forks, and people just kind of used it because they had nothing else, right? There was nothing else in the market at the time, and people started using that on their aero bars or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. So people were going for that kind of thing, um, but we had had feedback that people want something similar to the saddlebag, but effectively on the front of the bike, so it's not, it's it's still aero, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's that sort of sausage shape. Um, that sits under the TT bars. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be accessible while on the road. I mean, if it is, you know, great. But like I say, the Holsey design is the tried and tested method that mm-hmm. we use and we know it works well. So that's what we went with. Yeah. Funnily enough, Happy Jury did release uh, an aero bar bag this year. They did say that they were the first to do it, but we <laughs> I was definitely ask you did about it that.
0: first. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I asked you when, when did you, st- you were, I don't know if you noticed <laughs> that but <laughs> I do. I do. I saw it. Um, and it, actually, I wrote <laughs> down what they say. The first streamlined handlebar bag specifically designed for aero bars and the demands of ultra-distance cycling competition in Audax. And I thought, wait a second. Restrap had theirs out longer. Maybe they're trying to go with the word streamlined in the sense that theirs is very small. Theirs, I think, is two and a half liters and... Maybe that's what that means to them is streamlined is, uh, smaller and takes less space and more aerodynamic just because it's three times smaller. I'm not too sure. I mean,
1: ours is, ours is seven liters. Um, so it's, it's competition between, but you know, it's, it's a great thing because it pushes you to go further. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we like kind of seeing what our competitors are up to because. We're pretty confident that we can do better, no matter what the solution is. Um, we've got a few things in the works at the moment that are kind of, it's it's a new area for us. Okay. Um, I can't say what they are. I mean sure, I'm, fair enough. I'm, I'm literally I'm literally looking at it on a shelf in front of me. Don't say um, it, just I turn your camera. I won't say it either. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hang on, I'll turn the camera. So, hang on, what have we got here? So, one of... You can see that, right?
0: Oh, yeah, that's just a simple, uh, no, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're working
1: on things that, you know, we've, we've not done before ourselves, but we're looking at solutions in other areas as well. Yeah. Um, by testing these things out, um, and going into these new areas of cycle luggage is, it's going to be kind of a learning experience for us. Because we've got the processes in place where we can still get um, things made locally. Everything we make is made within our factory in Yorkshire. Okay. And all of the materials that we use are sourced from within the UK, if we and can. I, and like plastics the
0: other- and stuff too? Or is that like that's kind of imported as a bulk product? So the... The
1: plastics they are sourced from within the UK as well. Oh wow, cool! Um, and then we laser cut them to uh, the shapes and sizes that we need. The only thing that we don't have within the UK is the zips, which are made for by YKK. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, the market standard, and you probably you want to <laughs> don't want to redesign a uh, horseshoe, you know?
1: No, exactly. And they've they've effectively got a monopoly on zips, um, and they are the kind of the base sort of quality and you know we go for the best ones that we can in our products without it obviously being too difficult to use and expensive because i know that some of the bike brands use fully waterproof zips but i don't know if you've actually used them they're They're hard to slide yeah really really hard to slide and you almost pull them off the bike by trying to just get a snack out of your phone yeah the couple times
0: i've had like the ones i'm using right now like my top tube bag Fully waterproof, but it, it's hard to slide, and it starts to eat up the rubber that goes right onto the edge of where the zipper slide is. So, it, like, it starts to to crumble away slowly and just kind of get beat up really bad. And I think yeah, it's, I don't think it's very waterproof now, anyway. So,
1: yeah, because you're basically slamming the zip into its. Uh, we call it a zip garage, where it kind of sits. You're basically slamming it into that every time, mm-hmm. and the the bits at the edge kind of perish. And you still have to sew a zip on anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so the solutions that we came up with was ways of sort of covering the zip, um, because if you're getting, you're not submerging the bag, um, it's, you know, the bag's going to get wet through the yeah, rain. Yeah, your, your race splashes bag and uses and that, right? It's kind that. of a
0: flap over top of the zipper that kind of covers it from anything coming down on it.
1: That's right. So the race top tube bag, it used to use that. After a bit of feedback and a few adjustments, we've can't, we did move away from doing that. Oh, sorry, um, I was thinking was about the frame bag. Unique... Yeah,
0: the race frame bag had.
1: That. Oh, the frame. Yeah, the race frame bag. Um, we're looking at changing that as well. We're kind of assessing what level of waterproofing we can do without okay. having to kind of compromise on the accessibility of that zip. Okay. So it's something. It's something that we are looking at at the moment. It may stay the same. It may change. What goes
0: into into investigating this? Is it just making a new design and then basically getting out there, going in somewhere rainy, like the United Kingdom, and testing it out? (laughs) Yeah,
1: basically. So the product that I was kind of hinting at but can't quite mention... Mm -hmm. Our product designer and uh, Carl, who works for us, he raced the GB Juro last year. Oh, nice. Um, those guys went out and did the Second City Divide, which is a 350-mile, I think it is, off-road route from Glasgow to Manchester. So they tested out these new products because they are kind of oriented at gravel riding. And they tested them out and put them through, you know, a pretty tough test of five days straight off-road. So he- going through puddles and all the rest of it and you know one of the products that they were testing it did fail but we know where it failed and we're able to adjust the design and tweak things and you know bring the best one to market that we can so it's uh it's yeah the long and short of it is because we all like riding mm-hmm. um in the office we're always buzzing about something that's you know just come out or a new route that's available or you know it's stuff like that. We're all buzzing and excited about it. So any chance to go out and ride and test things out is, you know, everyone's jumping on it. It'll just be a case of, you know, Danny, our product designer, he'll sit there and be like, oh, I've just thought of this idea. Is anyone off out at the weekend? Yeah, yeah. All right. Here you go. Test that out and, you know, we'll go out and test it and try and smash it to bits, essentially. So yeah, it's, um, that's that's kind of the testing process. You know, last, um, a couple of weeks ago we tested out our uh, Brompton bag by taking it off-road and Riding it on, uh, Is
0: that the, the big one that kind of goes on the front of the handlebars that hooks onto the, um, the, what do you call it? That Brompton mount.
1: Oh, the, the Brompton block. Yeah. It's the, the city loader by yeah. which we released, uh, yesterday, um, oh, when we okay. were recording this. So that's out there now. But we, yeah, we tested that out by putting it through circumstances that, let's be honest, no one who rides a Brompton is going to be doing crazy gravel trails. But if they wanted to, we want, we want them to be able to do it with our yeah. kit. So it's, you know, it's just an excuse for us to mess around, really.
0: Fair enough. So you, you did mention that uh, th- you've seen, a, there's been a huge growth over the last, you know, 18 to 24 months, uh, basically since COVID came around. How has the company had to adapt to the the market demands? Because I I think things probably went a lot more bikepacking than touring because people are kind of constrained by borders. Um, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. So I think, especially in the UK, because the UK is a fairly, um, it's a fairly small country in the grand scheme of things. So the idea of a staycation when you can't go overseas was Mm -hmm. something that definitely, you could tell it was something that resonated with a lot of people. And anyone who was cycling at that point was probably thinking about trying out bikepacking for the first time. And it's, you can definitely tell it's something that's gone across the whole market because, you know, as we were chatting about earlier, you can't get any components the bike industry has gone absolutely insane, yeah. which is a good thing. Um, you know, it's, it's great to see people getting out there and enjoying bikes. And I think that the crossover between normal cyclists and people starting out trying bike packing for the first time is we like to think of a company like ours as being enablers for that. So, you know, once you get the bags, you've got the bags, then you can go out on any adventure at any time you want. So, as you know, I'm not sure if you do it yourself, but like a cheeky overnight, uh like bivvy or something like that. Maybe not in a Canadian winter.
0: Not in the uh, winter. Oh, I mean, we could. <laughs> I, I have I actually have two and a half acres, so I had a plan this winter to to do a little bit of winter camping, just down in the forest by my house, just to just to to experience it and develop my own skills at winter survival. I won't take the baby, though. I'll let her stay in the house. <laughs> But yeah, I think, I think
1: anyone who was on the fence about it before now kind of had an excuse, uh, when COVID hit, cause you, you couldn't go abroad. Yeah. That was just, it was, that was the case for everybody. So like I say is, um, we saw that kind of growth across the industry. We were, we were really worried about it in the, the sort of early days because no one, you know, when it first hit, mm-hmm. no one knew what was going to happen. But since then we had to upscale to a new workshop. Um, so the new workshop is, I think 13,500 square feet. Uh, the old one was 6,000. Okay. So, huge. Kind of doubling a bit more. Yeah. And it's been, so we moved there in Feb, we moved here in February this year and it's already too small.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So,
1: huge. It's kind of a place, it's a case of playing. Tetris almost with uh, the machinery and the staff layout and that kind of thing as we, as we keep upsizing. So there's, it's kind of an ongoing puzzle as to how we can sort of cope with the demands, but also keep delivering and quality and, and the way and working the way that we do as well. So there's, there's a few things that we're doing at the moment to kind of, to kind of sort of cope with that. But I think there comes a point where I think you would probably get to the size that you are. So we know that the main thing that we want to keep doing is delivering quality products to our customers, and while we want to do that to, with as many customers as possible, we never want to be able to compromise on yeah. the quality. So we we do we will aim to keep everything in house for as long as we possibly can. So I feel
0: like at some point though you kind of hit this point of no return where either you're saying okay do we grow, and you know I mean money makes the world go round and it's always nice to have more money, or do we purposefully stay smaller? And, you know, lose share in the growing market. So how do you guys approach that? It's a tricky one. It's, it's not something that we've had to really
1: kind of ask ourselves until the point that we've grown so quickly. Cause it's never been a question that was on our radar as a smaller okay. business. But as, as things have progressed over the last 18 months, it's kind of a question that I know is, is on, is on our radar Is to kind of is when you ask yourself, what size do you want this company mm-hmm. to be? Uh I don't run the company, so personally I can't comment For sure. um on where I want where I want that to be. Personally, I want us to be, you know, one of the top bike brands out there, uh bikepacking brands out there. And
0: but you also want I'm to keep that calm. family atmosphere you have currently, right? To some degree.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, like I say as well, as the most important thing is keep doing things the way that we're doing them. Mm-hmm. So if we I think people tap into um anything that is run with a passion, so you know, it, it could be you're watching videos of a train spotter on YouTube and, you know, it's, if that's your thing, that's great. And you know, if, if, so, if you're the person that you're watching is really passionate about what they do, it comes across. And I think that comes across in any walk of life. And I'd like to think that it comes across with our customers because they know that we're passionate about what we do and we want to fuel their passion as well. So I think by staying, if, if we grow, we grow. Um, and you know, we get to the size that we do. That's fantastic. But the, the long and short of it is, is from my personal perspective is we want, we want to keep things as genuine as possible. We want to keep our production methods the same because we, we, we want that level of control. We want that level of, um, sort of quality assurance. Yeah. I think it's, it's a very difficult question to answer without, um, well, without our founder here. Really.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, Nathan, where are you?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. He's probably, he's, he's, he's a human equivalent of a blur most of the time. So he'll probably be whizzing past this wall somewhere. <laughs> or...
0: Can you tell us about some of the innovative aspects you guys have added into your bag systems? Because, I mean, I think sometimes when I, when I think of, a like, for example, a pannier um, for a, a touring bike, I mean, there's only so many things you can do to innovate on something like that. But I, I think you probably still manage to find ways. What are some of the different ways you guys have innovated within the, the, the framework of bike packing or bike touring bags?
1: I think, I think the main one is the Holster designs. Um, there's only, even now, I think there's only two or three other bike brands that use a Holster design. And you you know, you've used our bags. As soon as you use a holster saddlebag, you, you just can't go back. So that was one of our pioneering um kind of product sort of design ideas is using that holster design and it, it works so well. Um anyone who tries it, it just they converted straight mm-hmm. away because you don't have to take the bag off the bike. <laughs> oh and. And then load it up, and then you're having to put it back on while it's loaded, which is kind of like wrestling a wild animal. It's just, it's an absolute pain. But, um, with the, you know, with the Holsey design, it just makes it so much easier, for example. Um, we used to use a lot of, um, sort of magnetic buckles and fittings. So our rando bag that fits onto the top of a front rack, yeah, that, that uses a, um, a magnetic fitting. And same with our food pouch and our bar bag. That's, we, we did kind of try to move in the uh, direction of using kind of modular bag systems. But the problem is with modular bag systems is, is kind of, they're they're very difficult to market because you're effectively marketing five bags in one. Right. And having a secure fitting is kind of, is another battle to kind of wrestle with in the design process. But when we first started, we did use a lot more of it. And it the ones that did work have carried through. And it's a lot of good feedback that we received on our bar bag, for example, is you've got that sort of modular food pouch that you can take off and put back on. And the rando bag, for example, that works really well yeah. on a rack because a rack is something that stays put on the bike. So, yeah, I think things like that. And like I say, is uh, with some of the product ideas that we got coming at the moment, which I can't talk about, sure. unfortunately, until the... We'll be releasing one of them, actually. I'm not sure when when are you planning on releasing this podcast?
0: Within the next couple of weeks. It depends when the baby's born.
1: Okay. Well, one of them is gonna be released on Christmas Day. Oh, okay. So that's our that's that's all I'll say. So keep an eye out. Subscribe to the newsletter and all that. <laughs> um But um yeah, I think by trying different things and because we've got a lot of different ways of uh, prototyping as well, so we've got Laser cutting, um, we do in-house. We've got 3D printing that we use in-house as well. That's part of our prototyping. We've also got a kind of metal works that's not too far from us um, that we work with, so they help us out with some things as well. And uh, what else do we do? So we've got kind of advanced CNC cutting. That's kind of a given. Yeah, there's, there's so many different facets of production that we use that we're able to kind of use them to our advantage, really. Okay. And I think... We, I like to think that that comes across with the products.
0: Yeah, I, I was really impressed with the, the magnetic clip system you guys have on those uh, the bags I've been using, the Erase ones. Really secure. Like, I, I can't just, I can't wow it enough. Um, and what I did was, like, uh, what I mentioned when I was saying the front bag was getting low and kind of deflated because I was, I was using it as a food storage. I just put, once I closed the dry bag, I just put the, the magnetic clip strap through the the loop of the handle so that it wouldn't by some chance fall out when i was riding but really secure a couple other things i thought was really great the top two bags you guys now design instead of uh, having a strap to go around your stem you have this little bungee system seems great because that's always a pain in the ass to undo that one strap around the stem i mean the velcro ones underneath and not so complicated but the the stem one man what a pain so i think i like that i haven't used your
1: bag so tell us so we used to use a Velcro fitting around the stem um, and it's such a tricky thing to design for because every bike's got different stack height and, and all the rest of it. And we brought that specific fitting in with the race top tube bag. Oh, okay. and then And then from feedback, we were like, yeah, well, this, is, this has got to go on the standard top tube bag as part of the carry everything thing. So yeah, it's again, just kind of simple changes, um, but you know, big differences in terms of the usability.
0: And how do you guys accommodate for, um, I mean, I guess a bungee has a little bit more give. So how do you accommodate for like stability of the bag while it's on your top tube?
1: That's a tricky one because it depends on how it's packed. Because of the way fabric works, there's a lot of ways that you can tension it. So with uh, the straps that come around the the top tube itself, if they come from as far to the side of the bag as possible, that kind of tensions that side of the bag. Mm-hmm. And with we use hypalon. And the way that high actually stitched into the rest of the bag where the uh, the bungee strap goes around the okay. stem, the way that's actually stitched on kind of tensions the fabric in the areas that it needs to. So that's kind of what keeps its shape. Oh,
0: okay. And I was going to ask you, like, what kind of um, – I guess we're getting towards the end and I do have to get ready to go to work. But um, what kind of fabrics are you mainly using and ha- has that really changed – a lot over the the last few years, or like, is it a pretty good constant? So
1: the fabrics that we use is um, is what's called textured nylon. Uh, textured nylon is um, is effectively Cordura. Cordura is a trade mm. name. Okay. Um, so it's for all intents and purposes, if you want to call it Cordura, that's fine. But so yeah, we use textured nylon. We know it's really kind of it's really abrasion resistant and it's fully waterproof and the lining that we use is oh, i'm just trying to think of the specific there'll be a specific fabric specification somewhere but it's we use a nylon lining as well um, and one of the reasons that we use the fabrics that we use is we know it's sustainable like sustainability is a very big part of our business as well um, because we do everything in-house we can control the wastage So a lot of the products that we cut, for example, they're nested up in a very specific way to make sure that the wastage is as low as it possibly Ah, can be. And the stuff that we laser cut, so the plastics, um, anything that we can't chop down to the smallest component possible, um we'll then send off to be recycled there's a chap nearby um who's called Tim uh, he's started recycling these and all of the plastic that's not used in our products actually gets turned into kitchen worktops which oh, is pretty cool, cool. nice and we are what we're aiming for as we go on is um is kind of full circle recycling so we're hoping to be able to use some of that recycled plastic again in some of our products so reusing our own waste um is kind of the long term goal of that
0: very neat. Yeah, it's awesome. And what are your personal favourite bags that you've used from Restrap?
1: Uh my personal favourite has to be has to be a frame bag. I think it sits on any bike. Um and then once you put it on, I I don't take it off, I just leave it on there. I've started using a bar pack a lot more recently. We released that back in what day was it? Back in March this year. And that's been a pretty big hit. And it's uh, it's the kind of bag that you can just throw anything in. Yeah. Um, really, really great. I think just for me, any, anything that goes on any of the bikes, because we, we make a lot of products that are obviously really high luggage, high capacity, but the the smaller ones, if you can put it on any bike, then they tend to just live on the bike. I mean, I don't know about you. Like yeah, a, I find a full, fr- a full frame, frame bag.
0: bag is not ideal to have on your bike permanently, but a, I think a partial is where it's at. If you like I think... Uh, unless somebody gets a customized made, your 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 main ones are three different sizes of partial frame bags. And I think that's much more ideal.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I use a large and I just throw all my tools, all my food, keys, wallet, phone, and I just throw everything in there and I didn't have anything in my jersey pockets when I'm riding. Right. Once you've kind of got to that point, it's like oh, that's great. And canister bags perfect for that as well.
0: And you guys have these uh fast straps is something else you've designed, right? I think is it the same strapping as you use um to hold the uh the the cradle, the harness to the, aero uh, arrow bars and stuff. Is that the same material? That you've- same material, yeah. So yeah. it's a We're material
1: good. that's called Hypolon. Um, it's kind of, it's a really hard wearing rubberized fabric. Um, it's, it's come from the sailing industry. Um, is it's kind of made, it's used on, uh, you know, those rib boats. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's its main kind of, um, That's what it's mainly used for. But we've come across that as kind of sort of like a wonder material in some ways. It's really grippy, but it's quite soft. And it's got a little bit of stretch in it, but not too much where it makes things unstable. And it's really, really hard wearing because it's tear resistant. Yeah. Um, And we kind of thought of a an application for it was like really lightweight alternatives to the volley straps that a lot of riders use. Yeah, so I have these straps. straps. They're
0: great for my cross-country skis. And I mean, occasionally just strap a dry bag to your aero bars or something if you don't, you know, like, uh, pre, pre, before I ever got to use your, your aero bar bag. But yeah, so these, uh, these look like something really worth trying.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Well, um, I can get some center across to try out actually, but, uh, yeah, the, the, The main advantage of them is they pack down really small, so Mm. um, once you roll them down, they're probably the size of a 50-pence piece. I'm not quite sure what the currency will be. Maybe a quarter
0: or a dollar. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, small. Yeah, (laughs) that kind of
1: size. Yeah, really, really small. And we've started out of the same material, actually. We've started making tie boots as well, so we started selling those this year. Those
0: look awesome. Yeah, I was looking at those, that whole kit with the glue. Amazing.
1: Yeah, that came about because Danny did this year's pan Celtic race and he just carries scrap fabric in his bag because he's a lunatic. Um, And he encountered another racer who torn the sidewall of his tire Ah. and he came back and he was like, Oh, do you know what? I've got this idea. And straight away went on the laser cutter and cut out this design for the tie boot kit. And it was done very good.
0: Yeah. That and your water bottle, the magnetic water bottle holder you guys have designed. Uh, I was looking through that uh, last few days and I was like, that is sick. Like such a brilliant idea. Like just I think something like that had been kind of designed in some aspects before. I mean, well, maybe as a quick release. I have something by Topeak that's a quick release water bottle holder, but nothing. And maybe I saw magnetic once before, but I don't remember for sure. But yeah, very very brilliant.
1: Yeah, well, the reason that we use those is because we know that when you're carrying a frame bag, uh, that sometimes it makes the water bottles quite tricky to get out. Mm-hmm. But because the they they're originally made by Fidlock but we saw them through our store as branded up as ours, um, restrap. But because they use that turning motion to get the bottle off the, well, I won't call it a cage really, but mount, you know what I mean? I to get the, yeah, the mount, because you twist it to get it off, you don't have to kind of move the frame bag out of the mm-hmm. way. So it makes, it makes it a lot easier to use when bike packing.
0: Yeah. So for me personally as well, like I had to get, um, like side mount or side load water bottle holders in order to, to kind of achieve that same thing. But then, if you hit something, uh, these are pretty good. I've had some bad ones before, but if you hit some really gnarly trails, you could just bounce out a bottle. So
1: It can, yeah. And the thing is, the side-loaded ones, you have to get good ones because if you get cheap ones, it feels like you're going to break them every time you pull a mm-hmm. water bottle out.
0: Yeah, I got some carbon fiber ones, so they're, they're pretty ace. Let me ask you, uh, in your photos of the fast straps, you guys had a like submarine-type sandwich strapped to the bag. Is that kind of how English people travel with their food to work? Oh, yeah. 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 Do you not do that (laughs) stuff? Would it work with, would would it work uh, with a kebab?
1: Oh, it'd work with anything. Okay. So I think we, we've got an ongoing challenge to our customers and anyone is welcome to, to send us silly ideas of silly things that are fast strapped to their bike. Um, we've seen, what have we seen? Bottle of wine. Uh, I've seen a, a pair of shoes just fast strapped to someone's top tube. That was, uh, that was odd. Someone strapped an entire, like, two-foot-long baguette, so it was like the length of the top tube.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering Flowers, if I could do the newborn. Yeah. No, that would, my wife would kill me. All <laughs> well, right, it's I love it. time for everything, right? And, yeah, yeah. of course, there's nothing that you can really tell us about that Restrap is working on, so any big plans coming up with you for biking?
1: Uh, So my plans are kind of open for next year, really. We're trying to figure out where we want to go for our next tour, so... Uh, this year we went to Croatia and um, for the first tour that we've ever done, where nothing went wrong. So oh, wow! I'm not quite sure how we're going to make a film out of it, to be honest, but we're, we will.
0: <laughs> what brand of bags were you using for that tour? No. <laughs> uh, Apidura. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so
1: yeah, it, it was it was uh, it was a great trip. Um, we're just trying to see what on earth we want to do next year. I think and we're do you guys do this? Is it like
0: of, kind of a little company thing, like? You guys just kind of shut down for a week or so and go on a bit of a tour, or is it uh, just like some of the oh, just some of the closer guys? We,
1: we don't close down, but um, yeah, it's mainly it's mainly sort of the close friends in the office um, that will go out and we use it as an opportunity to test some of the products and that kind Very of cool. thing. Um, we're trying to decide on where to go for next year. There's a few uh, races that we've got our eye on in terms of having sort of relationships, with, so there's still talks going on there at the moment. Um, otherwise, I think our plans are kind of fairly open for the time being, but there are, like I say, there's, there's a lot of product ideas that we're looking at for next year. Um, I'll I'll drop a little hint. So it's mainly within the kind of gravel, gravel riding sector of the market. So something to kind of tease people's appetites (laughs) there. We're we're going, we're, we're hoping to really kind of get a, a core, core group of, you know, very specific products hammered down in that area. Oh, very but nice. For, for what they are, I can't say right now. It's that strange, uh, well, it's that question that I think people have probably been asking for the past four years is is what makes it a gravel product as opposed to just a cycling product, you know, because our bags, as they are at the moment, work perfectly well mm-hmm. on gravel. But for gravel riding, I think there's a few very specific key aspects that we want to hone in on and like really tailor the products towards that because you can kind of catch all and by catching all you will catch gravel but by looking at those very specific design challenges that gravel riding can kind of pose to making a product is is we want to be able to offer something that's you know very specific to that style of riding and does a bloody great job of it as well
0: it's grown and i think as people are just tired of being around cars as much and uh, i mean i think even the uk has lots of gravel roads lots of people pretty yeah. pretty condensed population but at the same time there's lots of places you can get out to that feel safer and you know away from the more dangerous thing on the road, which is vehicles,
1: yeah, I think there's a few things that have come into that is is one of it one of those things is definitely what you just mentioned is trying to get away from the traffic I think the other things that contribute towards it as well is. I think the the mapping because the mapping is so good mm-hmm. now. So you can you can plot you can plot a route so easy and there's so many cycle computers on the market. Yeah. You can follow it without thinking. Whereas you used to be able to have to carry like an old I'm not sure what you would call ordnance survey maps over in um over in Canada, but you know, you'd have to carry like good old paper maps and follow routes mm-hmm. and, and all the rest. But now you can just look down at your cycle screen the same way that you normally would because the mapping's improved. And I think Another part of it is the adventure side, which is why, which is why I think that gravel riding and bikepacking are so intertwined because they are. I think everyone's realized that gravel riding and bikepacking are sort of, they're they're two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people want to experience that kind of adventure side of things that goes with that and getting like out there and, you know, while camping or, you know, slinging a hammock up, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and I think like even uh even a lot of bike tours I follow <clears throat> uh that I or even people I've met through the podcast over the years have made a a move from your more traditional touring bike to something a little bit more capable on gravel or s- easier trails, you know? So a lot of people are making this move, and I think just to explore a little further afield and get off the beaten track and it's hard to do that when you got 28c tires that are road specific.
1: Yeah, no one exactly. And I think, you know, I'm I'm not sure if you're the same as, as a lot of us will be p- probably quite sick of doing that same 20, 30 mile loop. So it's just kind of ways of mixing it up and joining those roads that are in between them, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, John, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I do have to get going in uh, about 20 minutes. I got to get in the car. So uh, my morning has to move on. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And I will get this released um, well, within the next couple of weeks. I should have some downtime no, when the baby's sleeping.
1: No, no, that's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> um for the listeners as well, as I did generate a discount code for them if they did oh, want to try amazing. out some restrap kit. Uh so the discount code, um I'll send it to you if you want to pop it in the um in the description or anything like that. But it is uh all capital letters is B T A pod ten. Perfect. So if people did want to try out some of our kit or see what silly things they can fast strap to the uh, top tube, um, then yeah, head over to our store and use that discount code and that'll give you 10% off.
0: Amazing. I will uh, add that. And then once I release it, I'll put it on social as well. just just for for the followers. Talk to you later soon. Bye. Uh, Thank you very much. All right, guys. I'd just like to thank once again, John Hicken for taking this time with me today. I know he's a busy man here. He's, uh, he was at work while, while doing this. And there were a few occasions where, where noise disruptions happened or some background noises, but you know, that is part of the podcast game. So thank you, John, for, for sharing so much information about, uh, not just the company, but your own adventures. I'd also like to once again thank the sponsors of the show, Outdoor Gear Canada, Redshift and Seven Mesh Clothing. You guys are awesome and uh, I really do appreciate all the support you have given me and uh, keep it up. On the next episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, I'm actually interviewing a really interesting guy. He's um, pretty well known in the Ontario bikepacking scene. Not just a bike tour who's biked in many countries around the world from Sri Lanka to Myanmar to New Zealand, Costa Rica, Colombia, Canada, of course. He's a route designer and he's designed some pretty awesome bike routes in not just Ontario, but also Costa Rica and Colombia. So this interview will be with Matthew, Katie, uh, tune in to check it out. I think you guys will love it without any further ado. That is it. Have a fantastic day. And, uh. That is all. Keep on peddling. Bye-bye.